Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest this week is Olga Olikar, Program Director for Europe and Central Asia at the Crisis Group. Uh, thanks very much for joining me today, Dr. Olikar. Thank you for inviting me. All right. It's great to have you on the podcast. Um, when possible, I like to discuss things that are happening in the week ahead. And in this case, that's no problem. Tomorrow, Tuesday, December 7th, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin are set to hold a video call, a virtual meeting. Now, White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki uh, said on Saturday uh, that Biden and Putin will discuss, quote, a range of topics in the U.S.-Russia relationship, including strategic stability, cyber, and regional issues. But for many people watching, uh, watching what comes out of the call in Washington, Moscow, and not least Kiev, uh, the main focus will be on the situation surrounding Ukraine and related issues ranging right up to NATO enlargement. U.S. authorities have been voicing concern for weeks about a Russian military buildup north and east of the Ukrainian border and in Crimea. Uh, the Black Sea Peninsula that Russia seized from Ukraine in 2014. And on Saturday, several U.S. media outlets cited Biden administration officials as saying U.S. intelligence has found that, as an AP story put it, Russia, Russian planning is underway for a possible military offensive that could begin as soon as early 2022, with an estimated 175,000 troops potentially involved. Now, there's been a lot of talk about Moscow's potential motives uh, for an offensive, whether big or small, from an effort to force Ukraine to implement the Minsk peace plan um, in a way that Russia sees that it believes it should be implemented. Uh, that's the peace plan for the for the war uh, that's continuing in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine, um, ranging to a bid uh, by Moscow to force the West um, to pledge not to bring Ukraine into NATO or even conduct military uh, activities, um, uh, sell arms, uh, deploy, deploy um, types of missiles there. Olga, what, what do you think? Um, is Putin bluffing or is that not the right question to ask? So in the sense that Russia is willing to use force, they're not bluffing. We know Russia is willing to use force. We know Russia is willing to use force in Ukraine. They've done it before. But I think it's also true that they would much rather get what they want without using force, right? This is why you kind of have the slow buildup. This is why you've got the demands and the conversations. So, you know, simply because they would prefer to attain their goals without using force does not mean they're not willing to use force. Um, but I do think that's the preference. Um, and I think you're right in kind of, uh, you know, when you point out what are, what are the things that they want from it. And, you know, it is, it's all of the above. And what's interesting is that Moscow's demands demonstrate just how out of sync Russia's views of the security environment are from Western views of the security environment. And then you've got Kiev's views of the security environment, which are separate things in their own sense, right? Mm -hmm. So Russia sees this general European order that's set against it and getting worse. They see this encroachment into Russia's traditional sphere of in interest. They want commitments to no more NATO enlargement, um, which honestly, you know, wasn't going to happen anytime soon. They want commitments to no basing of NATO infrastructure in Ukraine. Well, all that's there is some individual countries' training missions. That's not exactly infrastructure. 
they want a more compliant Ukraine, which behaves something like, I guess, Warsaw Pact Poland did in the 1970s vis-a-vis mm-hmm. the Soviet Union. But that's not the world we live in. So, you know, I think the real challenge is that we have a situation where what the way Russia sees the world and what Russia wants is very difficult to align with how Western states see the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it does seem kind of striking that, you know, these these demands or, or, or requests that Russia is making, you know, are for things that it just have been rejected outright, I think, you know, by, by the U.S. and other uh, countries, um, including, you know, a written pledge they, they want um, for uh, Ukraine not, you know, not to join NATO. So uh, I guess my, my second question, and, and I would sort of hope, um, you know, in a way, I guess you'd hope that they're using these demands to sort of put a big rock in the middle of the road and then take it away and settle for something else. But still, um, you know, there's... Yeah, I mean, it's all a negotiating position, except that then you have to consider that the Western response is also a negotiating position. And look, there probably is a place to meet somewhere in the middle. Again, you know, some of this is just looking at the same color and, you know, somebody sees blue and somebody else sees gray. Uh, I don't think anybody has any intention of putting you know, any major military infrastructure in Ukraine um, from the NATO side, the Russians maybe have a different view of things. Um, So, you know, could you agree not to do that? You could. Legally binding commitments, well, good Lord, what does that mean? Um, You know, the closest I can think of is the NATO-Russia Founding Act, Uh, from 1997, but that's not legally binding. It's a political agreement. But NATO does not sign agreements, right? NATO member states sign treaties. NATO member states can do that. Um, There are a lot of them. So, you know, I think it would actually, I would be interested in seeing um, the Russians have promised some sort of uh, written, uh, they've promised in writing what it is they want. Um, I would be interested to see that. I do think there is room for negotiation and compromise. Uh, I do even think that's necessary, uh, you know, because otherwise you can you might be able to get out of this this crisis, but you'll just have another one afterwards. Right. And uh, I guess my second question has to do with I mean, you said, um, you know, Russia's not in terms of uh, its willingness um, uh, to to use force uh, in Ukraine is is not bluffing. So my second question has to do with how the West and particularly Washington um, be, can best respond to this threat that U.S. officials are describing. Uh, in the White House statement about tomorrow's video call, Psaki said, "Quote: Biden will underscore U.S. concerns with Russian military activities on the border with Ukraine and reaffirm the United States' support for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine." Unquote. Um, however, Ukraine is not a NATO member, so there's no obligation to respond militarily um, for NATO or its members if Russia launches a new offensive. And the United States and NATO are not threatening to do so. So absent that, what kind of response could work? Um, maybe a difficult question, but a related question. I'm not going to ask you to predict what will come out of the Biden-Putin call, but what will you be watching for? Okay, so what kind of a response could work? Um, I mean, this this is this challenge of deterring somebody that you know is willing to use force. And there's, you know, you've, you've got this uh, question of what, what would scare them. Um, 
you know, Russia's threat to use force in Ukraine is on the one hand a threat to Ukraine, but it's also inherent in that is a, is a bigger threat, right? That if uh, NATO, Western states respond militarily, then this could all escalate. And that's the worst of all possible outcomes, right? You've got uh, the U.S. and Russia are the two biggest nuclear uh, weapon powers in the world. Um, the U.K. and France are also nuclear weapon states, right? This, this is you can this spins out very, very badly if, you know, if it goes on long enough. Yeah. Um so, but Western states don't want to threaten the corresponding escalation. They want to see if they can threaten something a little bit smaller that will still get Russia to back down. Um, and I think this is the challenge because Russia has proven that sanctions, for instance, it's been living with sanctions for a long time. Its entire narrative is that it can live with more sanctions. Mm-hmm. Um, are there sanctions that could scare them? Maybe, but I wouldn't count on it. Yeah. So what's left? Kind of buildups that create a greater uh, escalation risk in Europe more blo- broadly, which sort of you end this crisis potentially that way, but the next one's going to be worse. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I think that's kind of the situation we're in. We've seen people suggest that you use, that Western states threaten to send, threaten, uh, to send more trainers to Ukraine more weapons to Ukraine is a big conversational topic, but honestly, there's no amount of weapons you can send to Ukraine that will enable them to win against the Russians if the right. Russians, you know, put their shoulder into it. Yeah. Uh, they might slow them down a little bit more than they would otherwise, but that's about it. So, you know, I think that, I think this is the challenge, and I think this is why the threats have to be coupled with a conversation about how do you make the order more stable, which is that conversation about some limitations on everybody, uh, including how they operate, for instance, in the Black Sea and in the Baltic Sea region, including where they deploy forces. These are very painful, very difficult conversations to have because they're about people's security and because there are an awful lot of countries at the table, but these are the conversations we need to have. The old ones have fallen apart, so we need new ones. Sorry, just a little bit side question on that. Um, oh, if, if I didn't Russia... talk about the, sorry. No, that's fine. Uh, I just wanted to ask a, a, a side question about about what you just said. Um, if we're talking about you know limitations on 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 Western or NATO activity in the Black Sea, say, um, but would that come? And maybe this is sort of you know just speculation. But would that is there any way that Russia, you know, could be convinced to limit its own activities in? You know, within its own borders, which it always says, you know, you have no right to tell us what to do within our borders. Well, it's everybody's talking about people's rights to do things within their own borders at some point and at some level. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the Black Sea is the territorial water of all the literal, sta- literal states. So mm-hmm. all of them would be agreeing to certain limitations for themselves and any friends or allies they might invite in. Um you know, I think this is this is the conversation. It's uh, you know, it is of necessity about what countries can do within their own borders mm-hmm. um, because their borders brush up against one another. Um, on your question about what could come out, what I'll be watching for from the Putin Biden call, mm-hmm. you know, ideally um, a pullback of uh, Russian forces would be great. Um, but uh, you know, short of that, I think commitments to further talks. Um, you know, look, I think this is going to be a process, and my suspicion is 
that as long as negotiations continue, but before they've attained anything, the Russian forces will stick around, right? Right. Uh, because that's the leverage point. Um, once you've got some harder agreements, they might start to roll back. Uh, so we will see. Um, you know, maybe if people, maybe we'll see a commitment to come back to the table for Minsk talks. Um but, you know, this is going to be the first of several conversations. I would be shocked if this one resolves everything all in one blow. Right. And and I guess people say, you know, this may be one of Russia's um, goals is to kind of get get a con- conversation, as they say, going, get get talks going. You know, Russia's never averse to having, you know, a seat at the table with, with, with the U.S. president and with others. So, um I guess maybe if that's one of the goals is is to you know get talking started. Well, look, you know, I may not like the Russian tendency to bomb themselves, or in this case, to threaten themselves to the negotiating table. But these are conversations that need to be had. Um, you know, it's it's easy to say it's all Russia's fault, but Russia does not think it's the bad guy. Russia thinks it is acting to defend its security. So finding a way forward that makes everybody more secure should be everyone's goal. Um, you know, waiting for Russia to accept that it's horribly, horribly wrong and apologize and go back, you know, uh, pull its troops back and start behaving, um, I think is a bit of a fool's errand. So how do you, the only way to move forward on, on all of this is to have these negotiations. Right. All right. Well, we will see what what does come out of uh, the uh, the Biden Putin uh, conversation tomorrow. Um, we're running out of time, and we'll wrap it up there. Uh, Olga, thanks very much for joining me. Great insights. Thank you so much for having me on, Steve. All right. Great to talk to you. Uh, I'll be back again next Monday, and please keep an eye out on Friday for my Week in Russia newsletter. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.